Welcome to the Media Mavens Podcast, brought to you by the Evergreen Network. The Media Mavens Podcast is where you'll hear the latest and greatest trends, topics, and tribulations with industry leaders. And here is your host of the Media Mavens Podcast. She is the original Media Maven, Sarah Miller. Hi, this is Sarah Miller and Marjorie DeHay with Media Mavens Podcast. We're here with Mick Mulroy, National Security Analyst and former CIA Defense and Security on our Global News Watch. Hey, Mick, welcome to the show again. Thank you. Great to be here. Lots to talk about today. Yeah. It's always good talking with you. We've covered like literally so much on Afghanistan, and I don't ever want to take away the criticalities are important as it get people out. But like one of the things we did want to talk to you about on our last show with you was what's going on with Russia and the national security strategy because we talked about this, and we've seen it in the news that the Russians and the Chinese and their involvement now that the Americans are pulled out of Afghanistan. Is there anything, any updates on any? I know they're going to take over the bases there, but we stopped seeing news on how the Russians' involvement is and the impact right now in Afghanistan since we moved the troops out. Can we talk a little bit about an update and what's going on with Russia and how this is affecting Afghanistan? So specifically to Afghanistan, because the United States has pulled all forces out, which includes our intelligence capabilities, we've been trying to figure out how to do this, the term over-the-horizon counterterrorism operation. So it's easier said than done. It's right now the bases we have in Qatar and um, Kuwait are about a thousand miles from there. So that's really over the horizon. So the U.S. has been trying to find bases in the area which includes Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, and Kyrgyzstan, I believe. So all three part of the Soviet Union. And we've had bases in Uzbekistan and I think Kyrgyzstan, but due to Russian pressure, they ended that relationship. So we've tried, I think, by the fact that we haven't seen anything in the news that they were successful, that Russia was successful in telling all three of those countries, do not let the United States operate out of your country. In fact, I think it was today that Russia issued a statement saying they do not think the United States should be in Central Asia. So that would indicate that it's not going to work with those countries. And there's even been stuff in the news about the potential for the White House to ask Russia for us to fly out of Russian bases, which I don't know if it's true, but I am fairly positive that anybody in the national security community in the current administration will be against that, or at least DOD and the uh, intelligence community, because of obvious reasons. I mean, now we're, we're basically increasing Russia's influence by actually them allowing us to fly out of their bases. The espionage issue would be substantial. I mean, we chastised Turkey, I think for good reason, because they were going to buy air defense system, the S-400 from Russia, when they wanted the F-35, because we don't want our highest level aircraft next to Russian equipment. <laughs> well, I mean... If we fly out of Russian bases, then it's the same thing. So we would have, like, the hypocrisy would be through the roof. And I think, essentially, if an ally like Turkey did that to us, we have the authority under the Katsu laws to actually sanction. So anyway, the kind of long-winded answer to your question, Sarah, is that they have obstructed all of our ability to continue counterterrorism operation in the last three or four weeks, substantially. Yeah. I saw a thing, it was, I think, last time we spoke with you a few weeks ago, I was looking a potential trip over there again. And they were on level four high alert. And the whole thing with them is the um, embassy in Moscow 
don't want to say it was shut down, but they were very politely told the government official there by the U.S. Embassy in Moscow, you're allowed to leave with your family. It was basically a get out because the embassy was shut down. It's an emergency. It's by letters only. But they're now saying for Americans, it's all in the red alerts. Do not come to Russia. Do not enter into the Russian Federation. You do not have a embassy here and will protect you. They are illegally interrogating and arresting Americans to interrogate them. You know, I get COVID's a tough situation everywhere, but they are nailing and finding you up to 5,000 rubles for Americans. If they even find out you're an American, you've been fined because they didn't think you had your mask on properly. And somebody was a block away or leaving a store the same day as you were even in it. It's now seven years in jail for murder if somebody dies from the COVID, if somebody gets sick. I mean, they are targeting a typical, you know, kidnapping and all this stuff, but they are literally treating Americans. They want them out. I mean, the fact that the embassy has a very skeleton crew and they've made it clear if you're working for the American embassy in Moscow, you and your family are free and need to leave. It's gone really bad in the past few weeks or the past month or so. So I'm kind of made the assumption given the um, pulling out the troops of Afghanistan, this is what's going on with Russia. And I know we talked about the elections and they expelled eight Russians. NATO did for a spine. And this has all been recently. So, I mean, are we looking back into like, you know, they always say, oh, it's going to be another Cold War. It's Russia. We won't be allowed in there anymore. Do you really think all of this is heading back in that direction to seriously like lock out all Americans permanently? Or how do you foresee this playing out right now? Well, I think it's possible that we have, I mean, do we want to label it a Cold War? It, we certainly, we, it's possible and it's likely that we're going to enter into a, a phase that the relationship between the United States and Russia is pretty bad. So all the things you said, the Russians have taken move to limit how many people we have in Russia, in the embassy, they've cut off staff that are allowed, that the U.S. is allowed to hire, which is key in any embassy. There's a movement in the Senate for us to expel all Russian diplomats from the United States, or maybe 300, I think. So a lot, a lot. And then Russia came back and said, if we do that, so it wasn't all, it was 300. And if Russia came back and said, if we do that, they're going to shut the embassy down completely. So the, the Senate can't mandate that. That's a, The embassies are under the White House and the executive branch. But I mean, there, there's a possibility that it escalates to the point where they shut down our embassy, and then of course we would just move and shut down there. So, and, and as much as that would probably help the people that are responsible for counterintelligence, you know, keeping them from spying on us, etc. The diplomatic channels, especially in countries, nuclear countries that are this, you know, significant when it comes to their military capabilities, there needs to be a dialogue that's still open, and that's usually done through embassies, right? So, I wouldn't say that's a good thing, but of course, that's you know, it's, if anybody blinks, who's going to be the one that blinks? So. I would hope that they maintain at least the ability to have direct, continuous communication. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the irregular warfare plans? We just touched on these before. Um, just kind of give us some background on those. Yeah. So the Russians, they call it the Gerasimov Doctrine. That's their minister of defense. A lot of, it's a little nerdy, you know, in the irregular warfare community, but, and I consider myself one of those nerds, but Gerasimov, a lot of people think he was simply describing in a speech what he thought we did. And then people started calling it the Gerasimov Doctrine as if that was the Russian plan. So I don't know the right answer, but that's 
that's a shorthand for the the Russian strategy for irregular warfare. But what I do know is they definitely have one because they have moved out, whether it be in the Ukraine, you know, annexing Crimea through largely irregular warfare means, and, and we can get into that, but also their activities in this group called Wagner in Libya and some in Syria, them basically propping up the dictator in Syria, Assad, and essentially keeping him from being overthrown, which gives them basing rights to throughout Syria and on the Mediterranean, which is a significant issue for NATO. So they've used irregular warfare. That's more of the, the unconventional warfare part of it, so the, the paramilitary special operations applications. And they also are very active in the propaganda world. That's something you you and your audience probably heard quite a bit about, whether it's on Facebook, whether it's you know pushing these conspiracy theories. I mean, many people think that QAnon was actually generated by a Russian covert program, but and then all of that. That's uh, anything that hurts the United States. I think Russia thinks that benefits them. So that plan, which again shorthand the Gerasimov doctrine, has we've seen it in full force. And the United States, of course, have our has our version, but we are much more restricted what we can and can't do. We have, obviously, we're a democracy. We have a lot of lawyers, as you know, and they weigh in on the constitutionality. Even in my old organization, we are heavily reviewed by what we can do in my old organizations, the CIA, for folks that don't know that. We have an oversight of the Senate, oversight of the House. Russia doesn't have any of that. Russia is whatever. They, essentially, as President Putin says, it's good, then nobody can say otherwise. So it, it's a different playing field, but we have decided that we're going to compete as well as we can with them in this whole concept of the grass and all the doctrine. Can we talk just a little bit about politics versus people? Because I, I lived in Poland for a little bit and it was so interesting because at the time it was communist. And again, like the politics were communist, but a lot of the people were just hey, we're just one our normal lives. We're not really buying into the government as much as, you know, like the U.S. It's just like, again, what do you think, like the population as a whole, do they generally support this rivalry with the U.S.? Or are they generally like, hey, we would rather see us all get along and prosper together? So I don't know the statistics on that. I can just give you my general impression. I mean, every country has some bit of competition, right? America, too. I mean, we're a democracy, but, you know, it's, you watch the Olympics and we're going against Russia. So there's some national pride. But if you look at everything that they had to do to keep Putin in power in this last election, it indicates to me that you wouldn't have to do that if you were a popular leader, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, at all. I mean, literally, if you look at some of the shenanigans, anybody that was opposed to him, and I was watching, you know, some of this on foreign news like if there was one individual in one district, they would take people that look like that person who then legally changed their name to that person so they could put them on the ballot. So now you have 15 people with the same name to look alike. So now if, if you wanted to vote for the opposition leader, you get to the polls and you can't tell. I mean, it's comical. It sounds like something out of a dystopian novel. But it's I mean, that's just one example. They essentially, and of course, you know, Navalny in prison, now they call him a terrorist. And, I mean, if you were popular and the people liked you, you wouldn't have to do any of this stuff. So I think that indicates that there's a lot of people in Russia that would rather just be part of the, you know, the League of Nations that supports democracy and has freedoms and competes in on the in the marketplace and has the freedom of expression, right? I like it. I mean, and I think my proof would be you wouldn't have to go to these great lengths and stay in power. It would be the opposite. Don't you think 
I mean, your reasoning, Mick, is why we've had such contention with Russia. It's been difficult to work with them as a partner. I mean, obviously, they're not fans of Americans. A lot of people here aren't fans of the Russians. I mean, why do you think it's been like, where did this start? Why do you think this has gone to the point to where, you know, pulling out of the embassies and where we are right now, was it all political driven? Or do you think it was just a matter of everybody, like you said, fighting in the competition to prove they were better in tech, warfare, missiles, or whatnot? Yeah, so I think that goes to what Marjorie was saying. I think it's more the government, not Russia. I mean, there's a lot of Russian Americans, right? <laughs> You're, you have, a, I mean, a lot of Russian, I mean, we have, we're everybody, right? Everyone's American. So I don't think there's anything against the Russian people, certainly not the Russian culture. I mean, it's, it's part of America has Russian culture in it, for sure. I think it's really the government, which, I mean, it almost appears that they, they have decided to be the counter to America. Even if it's not necessarily in their national interest, if, if they can just be, because then it puts them on a higher stage, I think. And by they, I mean the government, not yeah. the people. But the government says, okay, well, if if they're the black hat, if we're the white hat, I'm not saying we are, but that's, you know, um, they're okay with being black, because then, then they're on the same plane, right, as the United States. So I think in some ways, it is in their interest to be countered the United States. In some ways, they just want to counter the United States, regardless. And they feel like it puts them on a higher stage when, you know, when the United States has to spend so much time talking about them and who's who in the embassy. And so they definitely are one of our most significant adversaries. But you also have to put them in perspective. Russia, I think New York State has a bigger economy than Russia, one state. So they're not 10 foot tall. They have a mediocre economy. Their military, we dwarf them. Our military dwarfs them. Yes, they have nuclear weapons. So, I mean, nobody wants to get in a nuclear war. So that is significant. But their military itself, we actually just, we spend way more money and have way more capabilities than they do. I'm not saying that we shouldn't take them seriously. We should. But we also have to put things in perspective because that's how you make good policy. You don't overinflate the significance of Russia to make policy. You look at what they have, their economic capabilities, their military capabilities, and we we far out. That's, I mean, and they're not the number one priority in our strategy, our national security strategy. It's China. But Russia seems to be the ones that are more inclined to actually have some kind of confrontation with the United States. China, economically, but militarily, they don't look for military conflict. Hopefully, we'll find out in Taiwan. But, you know, that's another podcast right there. Uh-huh. <laughs> we just got our November podcast settled with you. But I feel, yeah. I feel like it's like, they're like, keep up with the Joneses is what it is. I mean, and I have a political question for you. And I know you don't take sides and you can't take sides. So I'm not asking you to take sides. Just all this aside, do you feel if we kept Trump in office, it would have made it better or worse because of his relationship with Putin? Or do you think that was kind of in hindsight, yeah, that would have been the one good thing about keeping him there? Or do you think that had no bearing to where we are right now with Biden? Like you say, I don't I do not do politics. I'm not part of the political yeah. party or anything like that. So it's a relationship. I, I, I don't know. I, I really don't know. Because you could say, well, you know, if you're nicer to Putin, then perhaps he'll be nicer to you. He wasn't. I mean, the same time that we were had, you know, a better relationship, at least he was taking out bounties to kill American soldiers in Afghanistan. You know, I know we're going to talk about it, the Havana issue, which is sonic weapons. He was he was going after CIA officers. He was doing all sorts of things to undermine us. They don't care whether we like them or not. Okay, so they might like the praise, 
but they send, tend to do the exact same thing regardless of who's in office, you know, Republican, Democrat, if we ever have an independent. I don't think there'd be any, uh, maybe rhetorically, but, you know, actual activity, I think would be just as significant. Yeah. You mentioned briefly the sonic weapons, and we talked about them very briefly on the last podcast. Could you go into a little bit more detail about what they are, how they're used for our listeners? And that is the Havana syndrome, to your point, is what we're referring to as one of the sonic weapons, right? Yes. So it was first noticed in Havana. So that's why they call it that. But it's since been, I mean, for, it's been done in Moscow to a friend of mine who was invited there by the Russians. He was a CIA officer who was invited to go to Moscow in his official capacity by the Russians. And then he's got, and I'm not talking out of school. He talks about this in the media because he's trying to get attention for it. And, uh, but he, he's got permanent brain damage because of that. And he's not the only one. There's a lot. And then somebody on the direct, current director, uh, CIA director staff, was hit with this weapon, I think potentially somebody on the vice president's staff. So it is substantial. We call it, I call it a sonic weapon because I think that is what the leading theory is of what it is. But I don't know that we know for sure. And I should say, we don't know for sure that it's Russia. But there is, you know, Moscow, Havana, that Cuba is, their intelligence are restrained by the Russians. So we're drawing the belief that one, who would have the inclination to do this? Russia. Two, who would have the technology to do this? That would actually use it against us, Russia, in those two locations. So I think it's fair to say that we think that it is them. And it's just, I mean, it is within the line of their activity. I mean, they, they travel around the world with nuclear stuff to assassinate people. Why? It's signature. You know, if you're going to assassinate somebody, why would you do it with nuclear material that can be traced to your country? Because you, it's like dropping a car. Saying, you know, ace of spades. That's, you know what I mean? So, and then this is a signature thing. How many people have sonic weapons? Well, so anyway, from my perspective, it's, well, it's just freaking cowardly, to be honest. I mean, if you're going to actually do something like this, you don't invite them to your country as your guest and then set up and it's just cowardly. And it's, and, you know, it permanently damaged a good friend of mine, injured a good friend of mine, and, and a lot of other Americans. So I think that there's been, at first, people were somewhat hesitant to, except it was happening maybe, but now there's a full-fledged effort to find out what it is and to help those that were I think the reason why it's been so controversial, what I've read, not that, hey, it was a gun pointing at you or, you know, it's it's like they're in these hotels, they wake up with the ringing, tendonitis in the ears, severe headaches, the fogginess, they have kind of some periods of lack of memory. And I think it was with your friend Mark, so there was books out that I just ordered is because when they went to the doctors, they're finding out it's just some nerve damage or central nervous thing, and they're finding these symptoms, but all of these government diplomats or CIA people that are over there, they're waking up like a day or two later in the meetings with the exact same symptoms. I believe Mark noted it once that he actually couldn't make the meeting because the headaches, his equilibrium and vertigo got so bad, and then they realized all these people had the exact same symptoms, and they were all over in Moscow, but they all worked for the CIA. They were all there for a mission or for a purpose. And so they have the same similarities, but they can't figure out how they all got those symptoms and everything. So I know we use the word sonic weapons, but I mean, to your point, it's hard. Was it that, you know, kind of like being roofied here in America? In America? Was it slipped in your drink? What was it that they were around that could pinpoint? the Havana syndrome. And I think it's so hard to detect, but the symptoms are all the same. 
So it's obvious. It makes sense. You're going to correlate between the Cubans and the Russians. But nobody knows why this group of CIA people, military, government officials are all coming back with the exact same symptoms from Russia. It's not everyday people visiting and banking technology, you know, civilians. It's only geared towards high-ranking officials. That's what it appears to be, yeah. So Mark Polymeropoulos is the, the person you're referring to, a close friend of mine whose book, Clarity in Crisis, is more about leadership. So, and, and he's been some of the most difficult posts that the CIA has, both in war zones and out. So I uh, highly recommend the book. But yes, he's, he's one of the persons, he's the person I'm referring to that, that has been public about his challenges dealing with this, which is, you know, I was just talking to him the other day. This could last a lifetime. You should be treated just like you if you got shot by the enemy, if you ask me. You know, it's a, it's a disability caused by the enemy and their actions. So has this kind of thwarted and quilled on higher ranking officials to actually do business and go over there now that there's more cases of this? Does this deter you guys from being over there doing your job just for safety, given what's going on? Or does it kind of, is there something going on where you need to get over there to investigate as proof and evidence of what this is? Because I feel like that'd be for me, you're going to go over there, risk your life with this Havana syndrome, knowing what's going on. So it's not just happening in Moscow. So they're finding people with the symptoms in other places in the world. We're obviously not going to withdraw. Maybe that's the intent that they, we just thinking that we're going to get so nervous, we won't do our job. We'll do our job. We're not going to find out what it is in Moscow because we're not allowed to do anything or go anywhere without complete control. So, but in other countries that they may be using these things, it's there's a possibility that they could be apprehended and that they could be discovered. You know, whether they're it's mobile and they're driving it around in a van or they got it, they put it in an apartment that's near. I don't know. But we certainly need to get to the bottom of it. And, you know, the, the international community should demand it because it's, I mean, this is this is a serious weapon. You might not be able to see it and there might be blood like when you get shot from a gun, but it's having permanent effects on people. Serious headaches like migraines is how it's been described to me, memory loss, all sorts of things, just like you had a major concussion from an IED in an armored vehicle or something like that. So it's substantial, and I don't think that we should rest until we find out what it is. The question is going to be, what do we do? Do we just do defensive things, or do we do offensive things? And I don't, I don't know what the answer is going to be, but I'm sure they're going to be considering both. Has it mainly been American diplomats, CIA agents, et cetera, targeted specifically American? So the, what I've heard of, and this is just from my reading, it's been a lot of CIA officers, and you can, I mean, we are to them their worst enemy, I guess. There has been some diplomats, I believe. I believe there's some staff, not just of the CIA directors targeted. I believe there was at least a report of somebody at the White House that it happened around the White House. So like the White House aid, which would be pretty damn bold. So it's not just, to my knowledge, CIA officers. It's also diplomats and other like policy officials. Do you think that this evidence can be contained to just government officials, or is this more of a potential concern for everyday people who, you know, just they always talk about chemical warfare. They talk about nuclear. There's so much COVID. At first, they thought it was on purpose. I mean, unleashed it. Obviously, I mean, nobody knows where that came from still down to the bottom. But do you think this is something that is going to be used or targeted as an act of terrorism? Or is it only do you think something that's contained towards government officials, CIA? I don't know exactly what the weapon system is. 
my understanding of what we think it is, it's more directed toward. Now, there is there is something, and I don't know if this is the same technology, but there was something developed for crowd control that's based on sonic energy. And it's instead of like spraying with gas, you just point this thing at a crowd and it makes them extraordinarily nauseous. Perhaps it also does all these long-term effects, so they should not use it for crowd control. But I don't. So I, I bring that up because that that's used against a crowd, so it could be used against the mass people. I would hope that. I, I mean, if you really wanted to injure somebody, there's other means to do it. But I guess if you wanted to have some kind of uh, deniability, I, I haven't heard anybody talk about their concern that this would be used against civilians. So don't want to scare people yeah. unnecessarily. It seems to be directed just toward government people in places that they want to curtail their activities. No, they don't want you there, so they're going to do what they can without getting a little overly aggressive, which kind of goes to our little green men. Like, and I know Margie, they're you know, a Russian paramilitary group. So I know she did her research, but like, I know it's a term that you guys use, little green men. Which is, and I'm not laughing because it's not a funny podcast, but I'm kind of laughing little green men because you know that little Martian cartoon with the big sonic little guy? That's just what ran through my head talking about this. But like, what are why little green men? Why the term? And what does that mean for you guys? So you're right. It's a it's a shorthand. I think it comes from, you know, like the, the little green soldiers, right? Remember, probably your brother played with them. Yeah. You have a brother. But, you know, little green army men. Yeah. The little platforms. I think that's what it is. But what it means is Russia likes to do things like use their actual military, particularly their special operations, what's called spetsnaz, but there's other groups. Put them in civilian clothes, send them to an, another country like the Ukraine, and then act like they're an indigenous group of Ukrainians that just happened to spring up to mount an insurgency against the government of Ukraine. So it's like a it's like a fake insurgency of an action. So I guess that's where the term comes from. It's it's like a pretend. And then they and then you know even though everybody else is like, no, this guy's a Russian army guy. I mean, he's not from here. Everybody knows they're not from here. All the you know. But it's enough of a veil, the whole Grassimov doctrine, it's enough of a veil that they could say, nope, those are Ukrainian. There's a lot of ethnic uh, Russian-type folks in the Ukraine, especially around the Crimea area. It was a place where a lot of Russian military retired. So they use that to, to kind of generate this, I would say, fictitious insurgency of little green men. There's a group called the Wagner Group, which is owned by, what they call them, the chef. He used to be actually like Putin's chef, and he became this owner of this private security company. You'll find him in Libya and Syria and all these places doing somewhat special operations type or CIA type missions or paramilitary missions, I should say. But he usually has some kind of financial gain to it. So either trying to take the oil fields in Syria. And most people, I think, believe that it's essentially part of the Russian intelligence service. It poses as a private company of mercenaries. And I think a lot of them are actually active expense mob officers and intelligence officers. We're our concept of little green man, that's what we call it. But the Wagner group of putting these folks into countries like Libya, and of course, it does create a situation where there's a perpetual conflict and they don't have a lot of the restrictions that we have. I mean, look what they've done with Assad. I mean, Assad was on the verge uh, verge of collapse with the Syrians and wanted him out. Russia came in. Russia provided them an air force. They have committed some of the worst human rights atrocities of our generation. I mean, they literally carpet bombed hospitals, schools, women and children. It was 
and it and they still are. I know that a lot of the world isn't paying attention to that anymore, but that wouldn't have happened for the most part without Russian help. And, you know, Assad, with the support of Russia, used chemical weapons against civilians. That's why the U.S. strike them uh, a couple of years ago. So this whole concept of, that's why we have a shorthand, right, for Barathemont doctrine. So now you and the listeners know what I'm talking about. That whole concept is one of the ways that Russia competes in the world because it is a space of which they have a lot of license. And for example, the United States can't do it. I mean, we don't want to be the one supporting dictators that would use chemical weapons against women and children. So, but they are, and they do. And it gives them, it gives them more influence because they propped up a, a dictator, despot like Assad. And now they have a lot of wasa with them because he owes, he owes them a lot because he kept them from being toppled and thrown out of power. We've talked a lot about like strategic partners and obviously a lot of the European companies are our strategic partners. But now that Europe is becoming more reliant on Russian energy, do you think that's going to influence politics or our strategic partnerships? Uh, yes, I think that's a great question. The issue is natural gas. So especially in Germany, they rely on, well, they have a, somewhat of a reliance on Russia's natural gas. So this whole Nord Stream 2 that they have to decide on. Uh, obviously, the United States have been not wanting them to because Russia has no problem with holding it. I mean, they literally said this week, like, we'll give you more because there's a shortage. And they haven't. I think the rest of the world thinks, okay, so then Europe will become really reliant on that national gas. And then Russia can use it as a leverage, right? Europe's our strongest partner. It's NATO. It's NATO, right? So it is an issue. Now, I just was watching something. If you watch Fareed Zakaria on Sundays on CNN, no, I work for ABC. I do watch it because I strongly recommend it. I learn something from it every time I do. But he talked about this in relation to nuclear power, right? And I know in the past, and I'm no, obviously no nuclear power expert, and I do consider myself somewhat environmentalist. But what he's pointing out is now that they've advanced so far in the technology that it is clean, it is safe, and Germany, a long time ago, passed a law that they don't use nuclear power. But he was proposing that that needs to be re-looked at. Because if you don't come up with your own alternative power, mean you're going to be reliant on Russia, which is the entire reason why we even have NATO, right? So now we're becoming reliant on the one group, and NATO just throughout expelled eight Russians. Why they were even there, I don't understand, but that's we can get to that in another question. But the whole point is, what are we going to do to help our key partners, NATO, Europe, not become reliant on our number two adversary? Let me ask you a question, Mix. I know we're running out of time here, and I know we've covered this. We put a lot of time in to covering getting the people out of Afghanistan. I know we've talked about this a little bit. Just to kind of refresh on this, where do we stand? Are the Russians moving into the empty bases for us? Are we are focusing on a bigger concern with them? Or is the concern kind of shifting to, you know, just dealing with the terrorism and everything with the Afghanistan's getting people out? Or are we concerned to take any actions against Russia moving deeper into Afghanistan right now, now that we're not there? So we have seen a lot of discussions between the Taliban and Russia. I don't know how much Russia would want to be involved. They have their own history there back when they were the Soviet Union. Some believe it led to the fall of the Soviet Union. So I'm sure they'd be somewhat hesitant to become 
too involved, but I do see them looking at it as a potential for basing opportunities, military basing opportunities. I saw a report, actually several reports, that the Chinese had already landed at Bagram Air Force Base. I don't know if that's true, but I can see I can see our major competitors taking advantage of the vacuum we created. So we spent, just take Bagram, for example, we spent well over a billion dollars to build that out. And now it's possible that China and Russia could benefit from it. And we don't, right? That's the other thing about Afghanistan. It wasn't just CT. Afghanistan borders Iran and China. So those are two higher priorities in our national security strategy. So we had substantial military basing and capability in Afghanistan, bordering China and and, uh, Iran. So that's another thing we lost in this full withdrawal policy. I just feel like with everything that goes on in the world, I just feel like we don't focus as much on Russian intelligence and a federation over there because there's so many other important things to focus on. And I feel like the more maybe the less we focus on Russia in the news, kind of the more they just kind of slither around under the radar to do what they want to do and need to do. So I'm glad that we were talking about this in the podcast because given everything going on, we haven't really seen a lot of news coming out. And we know what's going on is not great. We know this is a really bad situation in general with Russians, but I feel like there's not as much awareness to what's going on over there as much as we're focused on other parts of the world. So it was good that to have you on to talk about what do we need to focus on? Is there anything coming up we should be aware of? Or people just need to be more educated and more global of what's going on around the world because it's all affecting us like a supply chain. Everything's connected in one aspect or another, but we're not focusing on anything coming out of Eastern Europe. So I just want to make sure we covered what we can on our podcast with you today. Yeah, and I think what people should look for is if the White House substantially reduces the presence of Russians in the uh, in the diplomatic mission, and then Russia responds by closing the embassy. You know that's when tensions can rise, and, and again, I don't want to scare anybody, but it can get out of control because there's not a lot of dialogue. So I don't think it's in either side to have any kind of yeah. real conflict. But it's it's also it's also something you got to be concerned about. So I hope they, you know, there's a lot of people and that look at Russia and go, why the hell do we have to be such adversaries? Most Americans I know. I mean, if they just like, you know, they have a terrorism issue, we have a terrorism issue. You know, they're an important country, we're an important country. Why do we have to be at odds all the time? I don't really know the answer. I think it baffles. Certainly, like, I'm not a Russian expert. So most policy people that aren't Russian experts, I think, have at least one part of their career. Like, why can't we all get along? Why does it have to be so, you know, with like the whole button, the reset button and all that? But it doesn't appear that we can. (laughs) You know, I don't want to tell you. It's like they just don't want to be our friend. So, yeah. uh, and I mean friends in the strategic sense, because there's a lot of things that we, they could be aligned, but aren't. So, you know, I guess you eventually have to accept that they're just, you know, they just don't. I hope that one day that changes. I think it would be an interest of both countries. Yeah, it's uh, weird though, because yeah, from somebody, because I've been over there and I got to say, it is the most beautiful place. I mean, I've been to St. Petersburg, took the train down. I mean, everybody I've met, Everybody I know who lives there, people I met being down there a few times, so warm and friendly, so nice. It's just a beautiful, amazing place, the cultural, the history. I mean, St. Petersburg is one of the most cosmopolitan cities in all of Eastern Europe. It's just sad that they have so much rich culture and 
food and just everything. And it's, they just won't share it with the rest of the world and open up like some of these other countries do. Because it truly is an amazing place to visit. But unfortunately, um, if people are traveling down there, they're in a four red alert. To, if you're Americans, don't do it, which is a sad exactly. state. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. It could be so much better of a relationship and it would be for the benefit of both countries and the people of both countries. You know, maybe maybe they don't consider it to be in the leadership of their country's interest, but for the people of Russia, yeah. I think to your point, it's an amazing culture. It's a beautiful country, I'm told. I've never been there. And I think a lot of people would want to go. A lot of people would want to go. So it's it's unfortunate. But we have to keep our guard up because they simply don't see it that way. And I say they again, I'm not talking about the people of Russia. Government. The, the power of Russia. Yeah. Do you think like with the younger generation, because, you know, like like my generation, your generation, we still have those remnants of the Cold War. But, you know, when you see like the Gen Z's or the next generation, they have like no memory really of that. It's just what their parents or their grandparents talk about. Do you see like in 20 years that there just may be a big shift because just generationally they don't have all the baggage, for lack of a better word? I hope so. And I think there's indications that the Russian government is concerned about that. That's why they do so much to control the media and the social platforms, right? And there's they're threatening Facebook today with you know stuff they don't like. So, and whenever you have that, I mean, if if a government is controlling what people see and hear, it usually indicates they have something to hide, right? So, if and if it becomes more and more difficult for the government to control that because there's so many different apps and you know there's worldwide internet flying around from satellites and Elon Musk and all these other things. I think it's going to keep breaking down barriers because people will feel like Russian people will feel that they know Americans and they realize that, you know, we're not the boogeyman and we certainly don't want to create a scenario where we go, we have a, we have a confrontation. I hope that's the, the case and that the, the further we get out from the Cold War, like you were talking about, that it's just not a thing anymore. It's, it's really not a thing. I think the younger generation now, maybe us, we remember when the, wall fell. But hopefully this kind of constant exposure to each other's culture will help bring down the wall and eventually the countries can be much more cooperative and much more of an actual partner. I think it's also because the younger generation, it's like no fear. We all have so many friends from around the world. There's no judgment. There's no preconceived notions. I mean, I have a lot of Russian friends. I, I mean, they're amazing. I don't really see it as a Russian, not Russian. Um, I love the culture and I love that I've been traveling down there. But I just think that no fear being younger without that preconceived anything, that freedom just to be a human being. That's where I think to your and Marjorie's point is going to push more people to travel, to be adventurous, to get out and go see the world and be cultured, knowing that there's more out there than just what's here in the United States. And I don't really know how much you could really control that short of doing the whole Americans aren't allowed in our country anymore. I mean, I think you're going to eventually evolve. I know about two people from Moscow who moved to San Francisco of all places this past year. Tech, business. I just think there's be more cultural crossing in general. That's just life. Yeah, yeah. And hopefully it has an effect on the politics eventually to be determined. But I think I think there is a chance. Yeah, I, but it is still the most, it's one of my most favorite places to visit. I hate to say that in this conversation, but it's an extraordinary place to go. It's kind of like with Cuba. You know, they were saying, go to Cuba now before it becomes too modern, while it's still old school Havana back in the mm-hmm. days with the culture and the food and the atmosphere. I just think now may be the time 
to venture out and travel before things change for better or for worse. We just don't know. But okay, it was also awesome having you back on the show again, Mick. Great to talk to you guys. I felt like we we're going around the world with you. Get an update of what's going on out there. We are looking forward to seeing you again in a few weeks. We'll All see right. you back on here. In the meantime, we do get a lot of listeners on because of your background, because we're covering kind of this branch of global news and giving your background, the best place to see what you're working on, on the Lobel Institute before you wrap, I know you and Eric are working on a lot of great stuff with ending child soldiering, but do you want to kind of tell us where you guys are at the Lobel Institute for people, I know, between the GNOs and all that help you guys get. Let's spend a second to talk about where you're at the Lobel Institute and the best way for people to reach out, get involved on and help out because I know you're hitting students, universities, professors, give us a quick update on where you're at with that. Sure. So LoboInstitute.org is the website. It is essentially a group of people that work in the area of conflicts. So we have fellows and we have interns, we have advisors, and we have an expert cadre. We do things like advise for the United Nations. We are analysts for the news when it comes to conflicts and national security. ABC News. And we work at the colleges and universities, and we are fellows at a think tank called the Middle East Institute, which is the oldest think tank in the But we do that. That's that's Global Institute in a nutshell. And then and we also do things like a lot of us, as you'd expect, not all of us, have military special operations background. So we teach specialized courses to other, our military and intelligence. That's kind of a it keeps us kind of in believing like we're you know still part of the fight, you know, with the younger generation. But we, we're not just, and I need to point this out because some people will say, well, I was a commando. We don't want just commandos in our group. We have former UN child psychologists who worked in refugee camps. We have a professor at Oxford who's now working in Iraq to, for justice for refugees. We have the former chief of staff for the White Helmet, which is a incredible organization in Syria that goes in and tries to rescue people that have been attacked by the Assad regime. We have a former child soldier. We have another lady who has been recognized by the UN for her work in rehabilitating child soldiers. So, and there's just, it's, it's a diverse group on purpose because conflicts aren't resolved just by military, just by intel. It's, and we have several people that are in NGOs. Okay. So, and we're always looking for a diverse crowd. That's, that's Lobo Institute. And then there's an NGO that's ours, but it's separate. Uh, and it's, called In Child Soldiering. It's in the final process of getting its 501c3. But what it does is it focuses on the problem of children being forced to be soldiers worldwide. We are involved with that because we did a documentary on one that then became used by a lot of uh, groups to raise money. And then it's been picked up by a phenomenal writer. His name is Mark Sullivan, right here from Montana, who has been just incredibly gracious with, you know, he's he's at a point where you know, he's been crazy successful with his writing career, and he is writing a story based on our documentary, and he's been gracious to basically fund the NGO. So we're always happy to take donations, but it is it is funded by that. The book comes out in two years, I think. And just so people know, if they do want to contribute, and there's a lot of groups out there that are doing it, but if they want to contribute to ours, nobody takes a salary from us. Everything goes. Everything goes to the to the groups that are out actually in the field trying to help these kids, you know, learn how to be a farmer or raise livestock or become a mechanic or whatever they can do to take them away from the the life of being a child soldier and then eventually an adult soldier and a militant of some sorts. 
which usually ends very poorly for them. So that's that's what in-child soldiering is. The other thing that I would point out, it's not just a rehabilitation. It's pushing your you know elected representatives to put an end to this because we have a lot of laws on the books. They all have exemptions. And unfortunately, regardless of what administration it's been, we've given a lot of our key allies exemptions to use child soldiers. And that's just unacceptable. I mean, the U.S. should do more than just say they stand for human rights. We should be the example for it. And we should hold our allies as well as our adversaries responsible for the violation of those rights, especially children's rights. Uh, these, these kids are in the lowest strata of the economic spectrum in the most underdeveloped countries. So they have no proponents for them. They have no advocates for them. They are forced to fight. Many of the girls, of course, and they're actually forced to be soldiers too, but they end up being essentially forced brides. I don't even know. They're sex slaves, essentially. And there's this, it's all together, and they become in this perpetual cycle of misery. And, and most of them, unlike our documentary, which certainly shows the men's misery, it also, in their case, it ends well. So if you're not just wanting to be so upset that you that you watch this, it, when it comes out of the book, you'll see that their story, they both fell in love in the bush and they both escaped and now they help people that used to be um, child soldiers. So, uh, but that's not the way most of the stories end. Most of the stories end very sadly. So my pitch is not necessarily, if, if you're interested in ours, then we'd love to have your, your uh, partnership or we do consider a par- partnership. We would put out and let you know where it went and show you the people we help. But if you're more interested in a more established one, there's a Romeo Dallaire. He is the guy, if you remember Hotel Rwanda, the UN general, I think he's played by Nick Nolte. That's the real person went on to create an NGO to help child soldiers. And there's a lot. I think there's uh, one by George Clooney. But anyway, if you're, if you want to get involved, please do get involved, whether it's ours or somebody else's. It's an issue that does not get enough attention. Yeah, the reason I brought it up is just because I know there's over 27 countries. I know we talked in one of our previous podcasts with you that majority of them are over in the Middle East right now. What's going to Afghanistan? I feel like we spent so much time with you talking about what's going on, what you're doing every day to save the world, and you know make it so that people can live their lives. We haven't really touched based on what you're doing behind the camera, behind all this stuff. And so you're building and the founding of Lobo Institute and what you're doing with child soldiering was such a tremendous humanitarian cause. I just felt like we needed to kind of bring light to it a little bit on the podcast. Thanks for letting me do that. I appreciate it. Perfect. It was so good having you on, Mick. We will chat with you again in a few weeks on another topic. But until then, take care and thanks for coming on the show again. Thanks, guys. Great to see you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Media Mavens podcast. If you don't want to miss an episode or download past episodes, subscribe to the Media Mavens podcast on your favorite podcast provider or on the Evergreen Podcast Network. To learn more about the podcast or our guests, log on to www.mediamavenspodcast.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.